2 Corinthians chapter 9. I've printed, I, I mistakenly printed the wrong text for you um, in the worship guide. So if you want to grab one of those pew Bibles, if you're visiting and aren't, maybe aren't familiar with the Bible, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 can be found on page 968. We normally like to print um, the text for you, the Bible text for you. If you're you know, just beginning to explore Christianity. Uh, we want to have it in front of you, but I messed up today. So grab your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 6 through 15. This is God's Word. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed Freely he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. You may be seated. Would you pray with me one more time as we ask God's blessing on his word preached? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, it is with this confidence, this hope that you, by your word, will dig deep into our hearts and change us from the inside out. And so we pray that you would, that you would confront us where we need to be confronted that you would assure us where we are full of doubts, that you would comfort us where we are afflicted, and that in all things, that our hearts might be given more to you. So we need your spirit, through your word, to do what we can't do for ourselves. By your grace, will you change us? So we pray this, our Savior, in your name. Amen. Well, if you're, uh, if you're visiting with us, if you're joining us maybe uh, for the first Sunday, we have been working our way through a series that we've called The Mission of God. We've just been exploring basically what is God up to in the world and how do we see every area of our life joined together with the mission of God. And we've said this, that the mission of God in this world is to undo everything that was broken by the curse of sin. And we need a total Christ for that. We don't just need a Jesus to come and die for our sins so that we can get into heaven one day. That's good news, but it's incomplete good news. It's not the totality of Jesus. We have a total Jesus. 
He's the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is our righteousness, as we heard in our assurance of pardon, but He's also the source of change, our sanctification. He's also our redemption, the one who bought us back from slavery to sin and put us into His kingdom. He's the one who died and rose from the dead. He is the one who came in humility as a baby, but now reigns over all creation and has all power and authority. He is the one who will return one day to judge the living and the dead and bring a new heavens and a new earth. The mission of God is total, totally accomplished through the person and work of Jesus Christ, but also totally applying to the totality of our lives. There's not one area of the lives who belong to Jesus where Jesus doesn't put his finger and say, that's mine, that belongs to me. I bought that. All that we are, all that we do, every area of our life is totally committed to the total mission of Jesus. And so what we need to talk about today is we need to talk about that area of our life where we don't like to talk. God and our money. Now, if you're visiting us with us today, you might be thinking, great, another church that's talking about money. And you can decide later if the, you came on the right Sunday or the wrong Sunday. You decide. But I've been here for 10 years, and I've only preached one four-week sermon series on money. And I wanted to drop this discussion today, this teaching from God's Word, into this series on God's mission in the world for this reason, because God owns all that we are, and all that we are needs to be given to God's mission. And also, I wanted to do this while we're in a good place financially. God has been generous to our church. We're not out just trying to raise up money. We are Really, our mission is to make generous givers, to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to not only see all of their lives as belonging to Him, but want to use all of our resources for the sake of his mission. We realize that we're treading into touchy waters when we talk about God and money. But a recent Wells Fargo survey said this was, this topic is the most challenging topic for Americans to talk about. Now think about this. Think about how heated politics have gotten. And their study says this is harder to talk about than that. So, um, someone uh, recently commended me for um, taking the bull by the horns and venturing where fools dare to trod. So, I thought, well, let's do this today. Because Jesus had more to say about money than anything else. While Americans, we don't like to talk about this, the Bible likes to talk about it a lot. The use of possessions is talked about. And you can put money under this vast category of all of our resources. But possessions in general, the things that we own, is talked about 2,172 times in the Bible. Three times more than the Bible talks about love. Seven times more than the Bible talks about prayer. Eight times more than the Bible warns against unbelief. Jesus talks more about money than about anything else. He talks more about money than he talks about sex. He talks more about money than he talks about marriage. He talks more about money than he talks about anything. 17 of Jesus's 38 parables talk about God and our possessions. 
That's over half if you're doing the math. And here's why. You heard it in Buck's reading from Deuteronomy 8. Suffering is difficult and challenges our faith. But prosperity and ease have always been the greater threat to the faithfulness of God's people. The writer of Proverbs puts it this way, give me neither poverty nor riches. That's the great middle class prayer, right? Give me neither poverty or riches. And he says, look, if I'm poor, I'm gonna be tempted to steal and profane your name. That's bad. But this is more dangerous, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? At least the poor man who has to steal and provide for his family is concerned still about the, the Lord's reputation in the world. But the rich man is so tempted to say, I've got this. I can, I can handle this. I mean, money is the gateway to doing what you want with your life when you want. It's, a, it's tempting to move away from dependence on God. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? In our passage in Deuteronomy 8, God warns Israel that when they got into the promised land and found prosperity ease, that they would abandon them. I'm taking you into this lush land. You're not going to be wandering in the wilderness anymore. You won't be dependent on me to bring manna from heaven every morning and and quail for you to eat. The land's going to be abundant. So watch out. Jesus warned the cares of the world and the desire for other things are one of the three things that will choke out God's word from being productive in our lives. It'll be like thorns that grow into our hearts and choke out the effectiveness of God's word. And here's why. Because where our money goes reveals our true master and our true loves. That Jesus warned us, you cannot serve God and money. You're going to love one and hate the other. It's not going to be, you're going to kind of be indifferent. You're going to love one and hate the other. Money's not worthy of our love and affections. It's paper and can burn. You're lost in the laundry. can be stolen. The economy can tank, but Jesus... The same yesterday, today, and forever. He has all life, all righteousness, all goodness. He can be banked on. But there will be in us a competition for our affections constantly. One writer puts it this way. Many of us feel that if we only had a little bit more money or possessions, somehow our life would get straightened out. We could pay off our bills and have money left over to give to God. We could get out of our present financial mess. We could live with some security for once, maybe feel at peace with God. There are all the promises that our money makes to us. But perhaps something is fundamentally faulty with this strategy of getting more and more. Because our lives are only filled with more anxiety and more dissatisfaction. And even when we get that pay raise, we don't give any more to God's work. Now contrast this with Paul addressing the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. 
the beginning, if you've got your Bibles open, the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 starts this way. Paul here is raising money for the church, mostly in Jerusalem, that has undergone a severe famine and is without need. And so he's gone on not just a missionary journey of of telling others about Jesus, but of raising money for the church. And so he says in verse 1 of chapter 8, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that was given among the churches of Macedonia. Macedonia was destitute and experienced a severe famine for themselves. And so he goes, goes on, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Because grace had been given to them. And then if you turn over to chapter 9, to our passage, verse 6. He reiterates this promise. This is a promise that you can take to the bank. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You see, there's an economy in God's kingdom. It's an economy of generosity. It's a generous kingdom because God is a generous God. This is at the heart. Generosity is at the heart of who God is. God is a God who gives. We affirm this when we, when we talk about God as triune and as a trinity, as one God who eternally exists in three persons. But have you ever stopped to think about how can that be? How can a being eternally exist as three persons? Because God is a God who gives. The Father eternally gives his being to the Son. And the Son has says this about because God gives. Because God gives, John 5, 26. As the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself. Eternally going out to the Son. And God the Son and God the Father eternally going out to God the Spirit so that all three together form one God who exists eternally in three persons who are constantly going out and giving of themselves to each other. Now consider this. And the most famous verse in the Bible captures this. John three sixteen says this. God so loved the world, he gave. And it's lost in the English sometimes or as oftentimes as we put that on our eye patches at football games. But he gave. Emphasis is on a God who gives. What did he give? His only son. What results that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life? You see the pattern. God is a God who in his being is generous. A God who gives. He gives to himself eternally. And out of his generous spirit, he gives to the most undeserving of us, his own son. You don't get into God's kingdom by buying your way in. You get because God generously gives. He gave Jesus. You get into his kingdom because Jesus gave all that he has. Now, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. 
Because this is the shape of the gospel. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And then you stay in Christ. Our hearts are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, Lord, to just leave the God I love. Our hearts are prone to do Deuteronomy 8. Get comfortable, wander away. So what has God done? He gave his spirit. The God who gives gave his son. The God who gives gives his spirit. And you stay in the kingdom because of the generous gift of the Holy Spirit who holds us, unites us to Jesus. It's the bond that can never be broken that Jesus promised in John 14, the, the God who gives, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, living and generous, giving with each other. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been generously given to all who belong to Jesus Christ. He's our Father because he gave himself through his Son. He unites us by his Spirit. We're one with him. The God who gives generously. Now, isn't it strange when those who've been born by Jesus, who out of his riches became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich, isn't it strange when God's people withhold our generosity and use it for ourselves? And so 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, but as you excel in everything, in faith, and speech, and knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you also excel in this act of grace, giving. If you hoard your financial resources, you're living out of line with the gospel. God will discipline you. If you follow the way of Jesus, then you can hold on to this promise. The point is this, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, again, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So let's talk for a few minutes about what the bare minimum this looks like in the life of a follower of Jesus, the tithe. Tithing is a word, it's our it's our way of translating. It's actually Latin for tenth. It's our way of translating what the Old Testament referred to as 10%. Your tithing, by definition, is 10% and is the bare minimum in the Bible. You can't tithe 2%. That is, a, that is by definition, impossible. A tithe is 10%. And 10% is what the Bible commands as the minimum of God's people. Actually, if you add up all of the tithes um, annually, it worked out to around 23% because you gave a tenth to this and then a tenth to the poor, a tenth to the temple, a tenth to the poor, a tenth towards other things so the priests could eat. Tithing, by definition, is 10%. It is the minimum. God's laying claim on the first 10% of your income and saying, this is belongs to me for my mission, which means it belongs to my church because my church is the vehicle for which my mission will be carried out in this world. And there's debate whether this should be 10% before or after taxes. I don't know. Figure it out. Just give 10% of one of those two. 
Those who belong to Jesus shouldn't be asking what though is the least that I can give. What is the bare minimum that God requires of me? But what is the most that I can give? You see, tithing is the first step towards protecting our own heart from money owning us. See, the problem with money isn't money itself. It's with the love of money. And money is a terrible master. It always demands more and more and more and never brings about the satisfaction that you expect from it. And it's not just that God has entrusted our money to our care. We ourselves are owned by Jesus, his slaves. And as our master, he lays claim and says, this is mine. And so when we pray this, God, give us today our daily bread. We're asking God to meet our daily needs. And then when he meets our daily needs and he, we then hold back our tithe, we are showing that we value the gift more than the giver himself. That the gift has become more beautiful to us than the God who gives himself. See, in that moment when you sit down and you write out your tithe check, it represents the loss of something real. is a real sacrifice. For many of us, 10% is just about the margin you have for that little extra to do in your life. That 10% means you can't spend that money on other things. You can't go out and get that boat or ATV that you've been dreaming about or take that next vacation that your children have been dreaming about or it might represent your emergency fund or your retirement account. But if I can take us... To Malachi chapter 3, we're going all over the place just to partly to show us this is such a major theme in the Bible. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi is fairly easy to find. Find the Gospels. Go back to Matthew, the first Gospel. Go back one more book, actually one more page, and you'll find Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3 comes with a warning and a promise. And we need to hold on to both. We need to hear both. And the warning is, if you're holding back your tithe from God, you've committed two sins. You've robbed God. Money's become an idol. Two sins. Robbed God. My money has become more precious to me than the Lord who loves me and gave himself for me. And so this is what God says, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of, a of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. And this is what he, he summons them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes? And contributions. So I've disciplined you. You are cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, into the temple. And there there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test. Test me. See if I'll keep my promises. Begin to tithe and see what happens, says the Lord of hosts. I will not open the windows. It's test me to see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is need of no more. And that principle is reiterated in 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. The point of this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, in our context, it's easy to read into that health, the promises of the false teachers who proclaim the health and wealth gospel, which means that if they say, this is what they say, if you give, God's going to make you rich with money, like God's running the greatest Ponzi scheme of all time. 10%, you just give 10%, and then you can live in the mansion. But that's not what God is promising, either in Micah 3 or in 2 Corinthians 9, because here's what he says. God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The bountiful reaping that God is promising is not necessarily in material riches. You're going to have enough. But as I'm depositing my tithe, I'm doing so in faith that God will increase his blessing, that I may abound in every good work. Tithing is not only important to the Christian growth, it is essential. You're going to stunt your growth in Christ if you are not tithing. This This isn't... How sanctification works is not how growth in Christian, you're not obligating God by your tithe. You're sort of buying the riches. You're banking on the fact that you have these things in Christ. God has obligated himself to you in Jesus Christ. That is grace. He who supplies seed to the sower, 2 Corinthians 9, 10 will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You see, this is just this amazing promise. Look, begin to tithe. You'll grow as a Christian. God will begin to untangle your heart from the love of money and the desire for every th- other things that are choking out his word from being productive. And you'll love Jesus and abide in him more and his word will abide in you and he'll become more precious and the gospel will become more real and you will harvest righteousness. And not only that, but as you give your money away, God will receive praise because that will be used to produce thanksgiving. The gospel will go out and produce thanksgiving for others. And God says in Malachi 3, go ahead, put me to the test. And you don't get to test God at any time. You don't get to put God on trial. But when he says, keep me to this promise, then put him to the test. Bring in the full tithe to his church and see if the window of heaven will be open for you and pour down all blessings See sin be put to death and his word become more productive. So I think it's fair to say that you can't say, I'm thankful for the forgiveness of my sins, Lord Jesus, and not tithe. Tithing is the barometer or a barometer for my gratitude. This is why God loves a joyful giver. The person who's been grasped by the gospel, by the gospel joyfully gives. Let me put this in closing. Let me put this in context just to see. Between 2005, 2000 and 2005, right? This five-year span, a study was done on how much we as Americans spend on non-essential stuff. 
Americans spent $15.2 billion on boats, engine, and other marine products. $27.9 billion on candy. I think a good bit of that went to my house. $29.7 billion in sporting goods stores. $29.8 billion on alcoholic beverages. $36.5 billion on pets, toys, and playground equipment. $45 billion in state lotteries. $59.4 $59.4 billion on jewelry and watches, and $203 billion on entertainment. $288.7 billion on domestic travel and tourism. These figures compare with approximately the $188 billion that Americans gave per year away. In 2011, that number was $1.2 trillion on non-essential stuff. You see that? How much it grew just over the span from 2005 to 2000 and 2005 and then exponentially after that in 2011. You remember that we are in a recession at that point. And the reason I give you these numbers is to say the money is there for us to tithe. Let me give you a vision for what could be accomplished. Craig Blumberg has got just a great series of articles and books exploring this. But he says, look, if all American Christians had given away just a 10% of their income after taxes, not before tax, after taxes, he's going for the, he's going for the low-hanging fruit here. If, if just 10%... If Americans gave away, American Christians, not American, just American Christians, Bible-believing, gospel-rooted, belong to Jesus, he belongs to me, people, saved by his grace, loved in spite of our sin. If just 10% of our money was given away, another $133 billion a year would be freed up for whatever the church desired to spend it on above and beyond the ministry that's already going on. Now, let me put that in context. That number, if the church would just tithe, I'm going to encourage you, like when you begin to tithe, some of you just need to begin to tithe. Some of you need to think about how do I add to my tithe and generosity. But to give you a rough number, if we would just do the bare minimum that number would mean that we could send out 300,000 additional missionaries with a complete five-year budget. They wouldn't have to come knocking on doors or visiting churches and taking them off of the field. They would just be able to go out to the field. We'd be able to write them a five-year check and say, for five years, just go share the gospel. 300,000. If the church would just start to tithe. Put that in context. And bank that on Jesus' promise. Because he says that he'll return when the gospel is preached to the whole world. Matthew 24, 14. If the church would just simply tithe, the world would be covered with the gospel, blanketed with it. And then Jesus would return. And 2 Corinthians 9 would ring out across the world all giving thanks to God who generously gives. Let's pray.
God, you have warned us that when we are comfortable at ease, that we will forget you. So please confront us. Please cross us. So that in our affliction, we might see our need for you, but that God as well, may we see how amazingly generous you have been. You have not held back anything. You love cheerful givers. Our hearts, my heart, is entangled with my money and my stuff. So free us, we pray that we might love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.